So, um, good afternoon. My name is Mike Matuzzi. I'm the founder of Contemporary Spirituality. Our mission, as you know, is to connect wisdom teachers with sincere seekers. Today we have the pleasure of visiting with Father Don Farnan. Um, Don, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. Thank you. I'm going to give the readers just a kind of a condensed summary of your bio and feel free to correct, expand, contract. Um, just turned 60, maybe looks like 61 soon. Grew up near Richmond, Missouri. Big family, 11 kids. You're the seventh of 11. Born to C.A. and Helen Farnan. Education, Rockhurst College, Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and Secondary Education. Master of Divinity, University of St. Mary. A Master of Christian Spirituality degree from Creighton in Omaha. Priesthood ordained, looks like uh, 33 years ago, June 13, 1987. Uh, well known here in Kansas City, served a visitation. Uh, some inner city parishes, St. Teresa Little Flower, St. Louis, St. John, uh, St. Thomas More, more of a suburban parish. I think I first met you when you were there. And... Uh, other positions include director of vocations, director of priest personnel, college of consultors, whatever that is, and writings include at the crossroads of hope, a priest inner city journey. I know that inner city work was uh, formative for you. This bold prayer, a collection of spiritual essays and a parish for all seasons, a year in the life of St. Thomas More. And then you've been at St. Charles Parish in Gladstone, looks like since July 1, 2016. How are we doing so far? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much correct? Everything is right on, yeah. Okay, and then just for the leader, reader's benefit, uh, we're very thankful to Don just because he's been such a supporter of what we've been trying to do at Contemporary Spirituality. You and I had lunch um, just after you moved to uh, St. Charles, I think, and uh, we were trying to move this to the next level. You had just uh, helped us with a venue for uh, Ron Rollheiser, who was here in March of 2016, and he spent a full day teaching at St. Thomas More. You were there then. Uh, when we moved to local speakers, you were one of the first uh, individuals, first speakers I met with, and you were very positive, passed along some names. Then you were one of our early speakers, and then Carl Arico um, was here a couple years ago, and uh, that event uh, you hosted at St. Charles, and he gave a full day retreat then. So. Um, thankful for all you've done and uh, for all the great work you're doing and I continue to hear great things in the community about uh, St. Charles it was really kind of a parish in some difficulty when you took over four years ago it was that yes I got a call from the bishop after there was a news report on a couple of the channels that said that the grade school was closing so that was a a tough deal it was um, a parish in an area here in the Northland that was really uh, a blossoming and bursting, uh, being founded right after the Second World War, 1947. So we're approaching our 75th anniversary here in a couple of years. But it was uh, a parish that grew and, and grew fast, uh, one of those places that had a 1,000 kids in the grade school at one point. But it was uh, such a, a stronghold that it split into five other parishes and now is pretty much viewed as the donut hole of the Northland because everybody has left them and this uh, empty, uh, vast space. So part of the whole idea of the school getting to the place that it was closing uh, essentially was a demographic issue. But uh, anyway, we, uh, I was sent here and uh, sent here to work with the school and see if we might do something to, to keep it going. And how is that going? Well, it's going. Yes, it, it is going. All right. I, I hope and pray that it's going in very positive direction, but uh, some days it really feels like it, and some days uh, not as much. There were uh, 117 kids in the school when I arrived in July of uh, 2016. Uh, we have about 160 or so now. I really think we need to get closer to 200 to be viable, that is, in our K-8 through program. But we'll keep working on it. We uh, shifted from being a neighborhood parish school because wasn't a whole lot of uh, neighborhood around, or at least uh, not much of a, a lively neighborhood of, of kids here. So we didn't have much to draw from. 
but instead we uh, got a sustainability team together and they looked at trying to be a different type of school, did some research, and uh, we found the classical liberal arts model of educating, and that seemed like the right thing for us to do. There was nothing like it here in uh, the Kansas City area at the time, or at least not with a, a Catholic um, um, connection to it. So uh, what we did, and it uh, sure makes sense to me. And mm, we're that's, building well, that's on fantastic. Because yeah, that was really kind of on a... Um, declining course and uh, it looked like the end was near I, it is the way i remember it when you started there so to to stop the bleeding so to speak and then to, to have the enrollment going up is a is a big development um and you've kind of opened a little retreat center out there too if i remember right uh, if so tell us about that well you do remember right yes yeah there's a, a nice rectory here a rectory that was around actually before the parish was established it was a farmhouse from what i understand and it had been built uh, built onto uh, by the priests that were here again in this uh, very much uh, vast and growing uh, parish. They probably had four, maybe even five priests here at, at one point. So it's a, a huge house, and it's got uh, six bedroom suites. And I'm the only guy that lives here. And so uh, we were able to convert a lot of these uh, rooms into uh, other things, places for people to meet, uh, library, retreat centers. Uh, so it gets uh, a lot of use. I don't have a whole lot of time with it because I, I've got you know my full-time job as a, as a pastor. But sure. a lot of people actually do come through here, um, and usually because they're just at stages in life where they want to look at things, discuss things. So sometimes I meet with individuals, sometimes I meet with couples, sometimes I meet with families, sometimes I meet with groups of people that are united because of various things that link them. Uh, it could be um, a group of guys that I meet with that were uh, classmates uh, in, in high school, but now they're in their 40s, 50s maybe even, and uh, just looking at where they are in this stage of life where there's a group of moms who have suffered the, the horrible sadness of a death of a child by suicide, but these women are close to one another. They uh, unite and hold each other up, lean on each other, and uh, we meet. Um, you know, so those are some of the examples of the groups that meet. And we have other spiritual directors that come in and use the place as well. So I'd love to uh, grow it. Uh, don't put a whole lot of time to it right now, but uh, when people call, I do respond. Okay, so if somebody has an interest in uh, something that might fit with the description you gave, they would call the rectory, or what would they do? Absolutely, yeah, they just called me at St. Charles. Okay, let's talk about the broader topic of spirituality. You um, went on and got another master's degree in Christian spirituality from Creighton University, fine institution, and I'm saying that because my uh, daughter went there, but <laughs> and it, because it is a fine institution, but... Uh, I'm thinking that's a, a big part of your journey. Yes, no, or what can you tell us about that? I would say that probably what matters most from my viewpoint as a priest uh, to the survival of the Catholic Church or really to the um, sense of the, the meaningfulness of the Catholic Church, it does come to spirituality. So in other words, Sojourners in faith, um, how, how do we find God, uh, that, that journey of faith? I, I think that I would do well to devote more time to spirituality and less time to uh, meetings and less time to administrative things that I'm tasked to do, but you know I have to do them. But I, I sure. think that the church would probably be a lot more meaningful if we, priests and others, uh, other leaders, just continue to walk with people on their spiritual journey and help them to uh, not so much find the path. And our bishop, uh, who many years ago was a trail guide in the Appalachian Mountains, uh, will sometimes make a reference to saying, really the role of a priest is to be a trail guide, to point out things to other people along the way, because you know, you've studied it, you've lived it a little bit, you have experience from other people's journeys that you can help uh, to share with those who are um, traveling along to just say, have you looked at that? Have you thought of that? Or sometimes trail guides will ask those who are with them to, to pause, uh, get quiet, uh, tell what you, you hear, uh, tell what you see. 
uh, what, what, what do you grasp out there? What, where, where's your, where, you know, what, what, what's going on with you? And where is God in all of this? And I think uh, that's kind of a, a pretty good image for what a, a spiritual guide ought to be. And yeah. I try to do that. Well, in your case, you were writing regularly. I'm, I've uh, got a collection of some of your writings. Here's one that says, we might as well retreat. And let's see, this one is fairly recent. It looks like it's March or April of 2020. Among other things, you say that the blog has 1,700 followers, many, many of whom tell me that they forward uh, the post to family members and friends on any given day. It might attract 40 to 50 random views from people around the globe. In the past week, well over 100,000 people have checked in. Uh, tell us about the the, the blogs. They're um, weekly offerings, and how long have you been doing it, and why did you start it, and what's the purpose? Right. They are we weekly when I get about around to it, so ever so loosely uh, once a week, and I think that's about as much as anyone can take. I try to keep them to one page uh, because that's also probably as much as anybody wants to read, I think, in our, our busy lives and our busy world. Uh, but the reason that we started it was because of being at St. Charles that had a, a reputation, I guess, as being a has-been parish. You know, again, it had uh, quite, a, quite a, a history and quite a strength, but there's not a whole lot that is here now. So how could we still be relevant? How could we reach out? Uh, to the community, to the world, and how could we um, how could we still ha have a strength uh, both through membership, through relationships? So anyway, I'm not much of a, a computer guy or uh, anything like that, but uh, my advisors are saying you need to do a blog, you need to do something that connects to people. So uh, that's when I started. Uh, I think it was in January of, of 17, so soon after I got here, and uh, it's it's a good way to stay connected, good way to reach out, and a good way uh, to be a priest, I think, in a, a world, of, you know, particularly we say the, the COVID world, COVID-19, coronavirus time world, that uh, re reaching out in ways that may, uh, you couldn't rely on, that, that, um, that we need today because we just can't be in person with one another. Yeah, some of the titles that, that really caught my eye, and uh, I don't know how much time we'll have to get to go really into any of these, but the Catholic Church left me, American spirituality, Lord of the dance, um, the church's sin of clericalism, who is to blame, the game of church, presidential derangement syndrome, stages of spiritual development. So, I mean, just really very provocative, very cutting edge issues. You don't really shy away from any issues and um, it didn't really strike me as an, as an, you're taking a position as much as, you know, identifying potential issues and, and maybe identifying a, uh, a level of consciousness to, that, you know, we, the, the reader might consider. But uh, if somebody wants to follow these, what would they do, Father? How would they do that? You know, again, uh, just out of my ignorance, I'm, I'm not the best at doing this. I know how to write it up and, and put it on there, but <laughs> I don't think go to our website that you can click in I, and you can probably join so. as a follower. Yeah, yeah this says HTTPS uh, charged with St. Charles dot blog. So I suspect if, if somebody typed that in, they would just start getting these in their little electronic mailbox, huh? I think so. Every day I get these little notices that somebody is following uh, you. They're following that's, me. So anyway, that's, that's uh, so they, they know how to do it better than I know how to explain how to do it. I'm sorry. I'm just not. Uh, I understand. So, yeah. Let me ask you about mentor, mentors. I've, I've been asking folks about this just because I think listeners are interested. Are there a couple people that uh, have been influential in your development that you would call mentors along the way? Sure. Uh, Monsignor Arthur Ty, when I was first ordained, assigned to Visitation Parish in the summer of 1987. He had been a longtime pastor there and was serving as pastor emeritus. He was in the final years of his life, uh, but we met and uh, connected and really uh, found a, a real strength of uh, union and relationship, almost you know, end of life and uh, beginning of, of priesthood uh, sort of connection 
uh, where I, I I guess I relied on him, or I certainly looked to him, and he certainly fit the bill, and he uh, guided me in in those ways. Yeah, wonderful. Did he have any anything to say that uh, still stays with you in terms of how to conduct yourself as a priest? Absolutely. As a young priest, I was worried about just uh, you know, showing up and doing the right things and, and, and following the, the rules, the regulations, the rubrics, all of these things that uh, I, th- I thought were so important. And uh, he, he essentially said what's important is, is loving the people. And, Don, if you just love the people, everything else is going to find its place. It reminded me so much of the gospel passage where the scribe, the, the lawyer, goes to, to Jesus and asks him, uh, you know, a similar question, having looked at the book of Leviticus or the Jewish law, I'm sure he was quoting from, and, and saying that there are all these uh, laws, uh, w- which one's the most important? And Jesus essentially said, well, well none of them are important, um, except as they relate to the base law, which is to love. So if you love God and you love others, uh, love others as you love yourself, uh, then then everything else is going to make sense. And mm-hmm. that was what Monsignor Ty uh, offered to me, and I'm here 33 uh, years later, uh, still looking to that as my interior compass, my uh, my north star. I, I, I keep uh, being guided uh, by those words and saying, if, if you just love the people, everything else will fall into place. And for me, he was the voice of Christ in that sense. He was so well-loved, and um, he was just a great servant of God. And his his, his spirit, I, I hope I get a little portion of it uh, that lives on in my ministry. Mm. And he was substantially older than you. Uh, he was towards the end of his life when, and you were just newly ordained, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, I use the um, image of uh, Star Wars with... Um, who was our great uh, mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Skywalker. I was just starting off, and he was kind of fading away into the the sunset of his life. And Mm. uh, I I think in some ways uh, wanting to pass on uh, that that sense of what he valued most. You know, Rabbi Harold Kushner had recently written a a book about uh, nine essentials of living. Uh, This great uh, rabbi now in his 90s who has done uh, such good stuff, just wanting to pass along something of value to those that follow, and that's what I think Monsignor Ty was doing for me. That's great. What would, um, anything in particular, you would want to pass on of value to listeners? Let's just say that um, you just, this turned out to be the last um, thing you ever got to say to a a large group. is there uh, uh, something that just strikes you as the essence of it all that you would like uh, folks to consider? That had meaning, obviously, to your journey. Sure. Uh, you know, I think that Pope Francis, in so many ways, embodies that sense of a, a spirituality that we all ought to try to, to follow. And that is that sense of being one with the people. And he says that in so many different ways, whether it's uh, priests uh, getting their shoes dirty. He says he, that's what he notices about priests, are their shoes dirty. Uh, have yeah. they been out in the streets? Have been, they been out there with the people? Have they been uh, walking with them? Are you, are you one with the people? Or are there several other images that he used of having the, the smell of the sheep you know, on your hands? Do you, are, are you one with them as the shepherd of the flock? Uh, I, I think that he, he's got it, and I think that he's got it in the sense of what Jesus was trying to tell us about uh, being one with people as the new Moses. Uh, The the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, speaks about uh, Moses as being the the giver of the law, the the symbol of what we're all supposed to be. And Jesus also went up to the mountaintop, just as Moses did. Uh, But rather than to to give the commands, he gave the Beatitudes. How how do we be in the attitude of, of, of one another? Um, certainly in Matthew's gospel, he goes up to the mountain as the new Moses, uh, but in Luke's version, he comes off of the mountain, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, uh, that he is uh, one with the people. And uh, Mm -hmm. in that sense, he's saying, I think he's saying, as a church, we don't need to call the people to climb up the mountain so that they can be a part of us, as though they can only be a member if they, they, they climb up to where we are. Our job really is to go down and walk with them 
uh, to be generally interested in their lives, uh, to understand their journey, to, to walk with them, to understand it, and, and to know it. So I, I guess if there's one message that I would want to give, I think that's where we ought to be spending our, our time is with that sense of, of Jesus who comes down uh, to be with the people. You know, it's almost like, again, I'm using that difference between Matthew's version and Luke's version, but in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Luke yeah. takes the same passage and says, be merciful as your heavenly Father has shown mercy. In other words, our path to perfection is going to be one in which we uh, show mercy to one another, that we understand, we empathize, we have compassion, that we, we, we get it, we walk with them, and, and we know the, the footprints that they, they leave for us. Mm, beautiful. This might fit right here. Uh, we had a chance to talk a little bit about a week ago and then before we started here, but before we started, you told me about your mom, who was, I think, the second person you identified as one of your mentors and uh, just right. passed away seven weeks ago. Um, tell us about her influence on you, on the family. Yeah, my mother lived to be almost 90 years old. In fact, she would have her 90th birthday this weekend, and my family is all gathering to celebrate that with her and have a sort of a celebration of life. Uh, here in our, our COVID world, the, the funeral itself was much more quiet or subdued. Uh, but even so, with 11 children and, and 40 or 50 grandchildren, probably 75 people even at that uh, gathering. But she she uh, certainly was a person of, of goodness and of kindness. Uh, St. John Vianney uh, once said something like, and this was right after his own mother died, he said, after God, I owe everything to my mother, uh, for she was so good. He said, I want you to remember that virtue will pass readily from the heart of a mother into that of her children. And any child who's been given the gift of a good mother should never look upon her image or even contemplate her memory uh, without a tear. Mm. I just think that's so beautiful. And it's, it's not so it much a tear of sadness of loss. It is that, but even more so, it's, it's tears of gratitude for the gift of a, a good mother. Uh, my mom was incredibly uh, kind. And uh, she uh, gave, gave it all away. That was her, her life was uh, one in which was uh, totally giving. I don't know if you remember the, um, I call her the patron saint of uh, American women and housewives was uh, Irma Bombeck. Yes, and, um, sure. <laughs> you remember the story that when she was dying and she had the cancer and, and uh, carried that for quite a while, but she kept working, she kept going, she kept uh, going at it. And um, she said that she wanted to uh, appear before God uh, with her scars, uh, with her wounds. Uh, oh, she beautiful. To appear tired, <laughs> worn out. She wanted to turn her pockets in inside out and show that they were empty and be able to limp up to him and say, look, I, look, Lord, I, I used it all. You, you gave yeah. me so much. You gave me so and I gave it all away. And I, I think for my mom, that was kind of her way. She, she gave it all away. And uh, that, that's beautiful uh, to me. Boy, I mean, 11 kids, 40, 50 grandkids. Uh, yeah, I could just imagine a holiday. Boy, you need to rent a barn or something or an event center just, uh, just to get the immediate family in. My goodness. That's right. Fortunately, I come from the farm, and a lot of my families have barns, so it works out just fine. So it works out just fine. <laughs> let, me, yeah. let me move you to another phase of, of your um of your parish life, which I'm intrigued by. So Gladstone is, is kind of a suburban parish and, and unique, as you described. And St. Thomas More was, a uh, for the folks listening who are from Kansas City, kind of a suburban parish. But then you had this stretch of, of really working in inner city parishes. And uh, how, if at all, did that impact you and your sense of the gospel? The inner city, the urban core in Kansas City, probably had the greatest or biggest impact on me in my assignments. I, I got to spend just short of 10 years there, about about nine and a half. And I, I think that the uh, you know greatest challenge was just to, to learn or be a part of a, a culture that I just wasn't all that familiar with. So, uh, like, for example, I would, uh, you know, dress up every day, put on my Roman collar, and go out and try to be with the people. So I said, why, why do you do that? Why are you dressing in that way? Uh, why, why wouldn't you be one with us? And I thought, well, that makes sense. I learned more about the Roman collar and 
uh, you know, found out that that was the, the dress, the garb, uh, the, the norm for a time in history uh, in which that's the way the, the people in Rome dressed. But uh, as yeah. fashions changed, they didn't change for the priest. So he, he kept that. And I thought, well, the whole idea originally was to be one with the, 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 pre, uh, the people. So it, it makes a little bit uh, more sense. So I guess what I learned from the inner city was uh, to be myself, but to be, uh, again, one with the people. You think often of those uh, traditions that we uh, hand on, uh, and the great task of the church, I think, is to hand on those traditions, uh, but, but the traditions have to be the fire, you know, that they can't be the ashes. And I think so often in our church today, that's what we're trying to hand on, are, are the ashes of things that, 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 that were dead. I mean, they've served their purpose. They've burnt out. And the, the inner city, in, in lots of ways, was on fire. And I, I guess I, I, I think I, I'm, I understand our, our traditions more. That is our, our union with uh, uh, Christ and our uh, tr- traditions here in, in the United States, or at least in our, our history. You, know, you think of the Native Americans and their spirituality, mm-hmm. which, is, again, is a strong sense of what is that fire of God's love which is essentially the Holy Spirit that dwells within uh, each of us and, and handing that on. So I, I found that, that, that fire uh, in the urban core. Um, you know, I was a younger guy then, and I, I had the energy for it. I don't know that I'd have the energy uh, for it uh, now, but, you know, just uh, to, to, to be there, to, to deal with tragedy after tragedy, uh, walking the streets, looking for signs of a missing person or uh, – dealing with um you know the great sadness you know i think uh, today uh, of the plight of empathy w- with those who have suffered from injustices uh, the injustice of, of racism as a systemic issue uh it, it's in some ways easier to identify with that uh, living in the inner city than it is sure. living in a suburban community but uh, i was so grateful for those years they they were good they were good years for me as far as learning and learning what it means to be a priest, I think. Yeah, I'm looking at an article you wrote. It looks like July, uh, uh, let's see, July 2020. This is very recent, American spirituality. Quoting John Denver here, Rocky Mountain High, I think about Native American spirituality that accompanied them during years of European takeover, hoping that we might be infused with some of it today. Ours might be the only country on earth in which the Catholic Church does not inculcate native spirituality into worship. Um, can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. Yes, I was uh, kind of Rocky Mountain High because of those uh, lyrics of John Denver that starts sure. saying he was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he'd never been before. I, I was ordained uh, when I was 27 years old in the, in the summer in June, and in some ways I was awakened to something new. If you know, with the um, the ritual of a, a priest's ordination, he lays flat on the altar, in the sanctuary uh, before the altar, and it's essentially dying to the past. And then he, he rises up, and the the, the uh, bishop then uh, lays hands on him, and he is called into a new way of life. So in that sense, being born in the summer of the 27th year. So anyway, that's what I was uh, utilizing. But to speak of uh, native spirituality. You know, it's almost kind of like uh, Mercy Eliade, uh, who speaks about the sacred and the profane, and how do you how do you look at uh, all of, of creation, or Matthew Fox and creation spirituality, and saying that we honor and respect uh, the the incredible uh, cathedral of creation uh, that that is out there, that is is, is God's uh, gift to us, and I, I think that our attitude or the, the attitude of our ancestors who were the uh, colonizers, those that were looking at the land and saying, well, here's here's a challenge. Uh, you know, their sense and maybe our sense today is that progress means a development, and development uh, would mean subduing the land in a way that that uh, repurposes it. Uh, so to you know, keep moving west in this sense, but to keep developing, 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 and that's all progress. Well, that, that, that's a great thing, but it's not what our na- Native American ancestors. Uh, who would have viewed the world uh, a little bit differently because all of that uh, creation is uh, to be revered, uh, to be reverenced, uh, to be honored. Uh, we are a part of something greater than ourselves. Uh, you know, they might look to heaven as being the great uh, hunting grounds uh, and uh, our, our life here in this great land of also uh, being a part 
of, of, of creation it, itself, uh, or to see the great spirit, what we, I think, in our, our Catholic uh, lexicon would call the Holy Spirit, where they would mm-hmm. say that, that the great spirit that is a part of us, uh, that is, is with us. But then again, I would say that, gosh, there's so much that is linked between Native American spirituality even today to our own uh, Judeo-Christian history. If you remember the the probably the most important Jewish prayer, the Shema prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Yakad, which basically uh, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, is, is one. The Lord our God is Lord alone. Well, remember Chief uh, Seattle uh, once said uh, one day that the white man is going to realize what the red man already knows, and that is our God is the same God. Our God is one. Uh, But we just have different paths to that uh, journey, and and one might view it uh, more as as the land is to be subdued in a way which means to be um, conquered and changed, and another path might view uh, the land as being uh, revered uh, where we find our place within it as it is. Mm-hmm. On a related topic, you mentioned Matthew Fox. I think he's one of the first, or at least he's often credited with coining the term original blessing. You know, and, and you know, so, many, so many of us my age, and you and I are about the same age, grew up with original sin. You know, it's all bad, and uh, it, we just have to stay clean and stay on this, you know, tight little container. And uh, talk about that. Have we overdone the notion of original sin, and have we, you know, missed out on uh, gratitude and, and original blessing. Yeah, I think that we have missed out on something that's kind of crucial. Um, but I, I, I don't know th- that we missed out totally. Uh, I don't think that we have. I just think sometimes we get caught up in a, a, a very ne- negative sense of things. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, couldn't we say that I uh, forget who said this, but the, the, what psychology calls the human condition, mm-hmm. uh, theology calls the original sin. So this is our, our human condition is that we're not perfect, uh, that we're right. sin, that we're not God. And so, the, the, but the blessing is that we are created in the image and likeness of God, uh, that we have this whole uh, idea that we are a part of this beautiful world that God created and, and saw that it was good. And that uh, when he created uh, man, created humanity, it, it is very good. Um, it, it's, it's all good. And yet there is a part of us that always looks to the negative. You know, this idea of our original sin being that the world is dark. Uh, but uh, thanks be to God, we have the light. You know, we've been given a, a part of the light so that we can get through the, the darkness if we only do these certain things. Uh but, but there's another way of, of looking at things. That's not to view the world as being bad and evil and, and dark, where we're here to, to change it, uh, but rather to see the world as the, the Bible says, that it, it is good. And can we recognize th- that, that blessing of which we are a part of, and can we advance the world in our human condition of which God himself took on, shedding divinity, uh, to to take on humanity, and and walking uh, with us, and, and to recognize uh, that that goodness and that beauty. So I don't know if I'm getting off the track here, but Matthew Fox, uh, not unlike uh, Pierre uh, Chardin, uh, Chardin, Chardin, yeah, and the mass of creation or the the mass of the world is sometimes called to recognize uh, the the beauty of of all of it, and to recognize our place within it and to honor the good Lord uh, because of it. Uh, yeah. so, you know, whether it's original sin or original blessing, I think they're just two different paths that we take. Um, sometimes people, uh, it helps them to, these are the glass half empty people, that they, they, they yeah. are motivated more by the negative, uh, and others are motivated more by uh, the positive. You, you see that a lot with coaches uh, trying to coach uh, kids. Yes. You know, you know, Bobby Knight was good at that. He would he would find the negative, uh, throw a chair, or cuss out a kid because he knew that they were motivated by the negative. But uh, yeah. I, it's not me. I'm going to be uh, motivated by what's positive. Yeah, I get it. Um, next topic, and I and I think this fits. I'm I'm looking at. An article you wrote again recently. Uh, the Catholic Church left me, and I'm, I'm more focused on 
something you wrote in the middle in these two sentences. Way too many young Catholics now self-identify as spiritual, not religious. That's, I think, every institutional church uh, has that problem. But then you go on to the uh, last sentence. I'd like you to expand on this, if you will. Essentially, they want us to point them to God and no longer pretend to contain God. They realize, as we all do, that God cannot be contained by any religion or worldly enterprise. Um, I mean, you've really been talking about it, that and their whole concept, but on a somewhat narrower point, what um, how do you, I mean, you've been a, a priest for 33 years. How do you deal exactly with this phenomenon that you're describing here? There, there's just a, a different generation that uh, um, just, doesn't feel the same commitment to the institution, for lack of a better characterization. Sure. What do they want, and, and what do we have to give them? Yeah, uh, you know, and there are so many ways that I just uh, admire the generation that follows us because they are willing to question uh, and to challenge things that our parents' generation probably didn't challenge. And, and you hear this so often from people that are, are now understanding through the revelation of pedophile priests and, and those that have, have suffered uh, greatly. And uh, I don't know if you ever ran into this, but I would run into uh, kids when I was in uh, m- middle school, high school. And uh, I, I didn't live here in Kansas City, but I had cousins and, and met friends here in Kansas City. And in one particular parish, you know, the kids just kind of joked about this particular priest, and they all knew that he was he was a pedophile because they had been targeted by him. Uh, but when the conversation came up about, you know, tell your parents, it was, you know, they they would laugh because they would say, well, their parents said the priest, you know, I mean, they would just they were just baffled by that. Well, the priest would never do anything wrong. You, you know, you're wrong. That that just couldn't happen. So, right. so people, uh, you know, only see what they want to see. But I think that, uh, you know, the generations uh, after us is, is so different from the generation before us uh, because they are willing to, to question everything. Um, and, and maybe we did that, too. I, I, I think we did. Um, maybe we did it with, with uh, different structures, though. Uh, I, I think that the Catholic Church really needs to, to speak to the young people because they, they don't just accept things like our generation did because of what our parents suggested that they ought. In other words, that God is contained in the Catholic Church, and if you want to know God, then uh, do what the priest or the nun says, or do um, you know believe these things, follow this regulation, this rule, this rubric. But I think there is something wiser going on here that young people just don't naturally accept because part of it is, um, I don't know that they're jaded by the structure of the institution, but there's certainly more questioning of it. Is why, why would you do that? Um, so, so in other words, um, you, you know, Jesus himself was not a huge fan of, of rubric, rubrics and rules and regulations and um, all of these things that the Catholic Church wants to contain. And, and mm. so they are kind of enlightening us and saying, well, of course God can't be contained. Uh, and our church leaders need to know that as well. I'm not sure if I'm getting off topic here uh, for you, but... No, I, I think I, you're I, on topic. Uh, yes. You know, there's some like Richard Rohr would advance, and, and it sounds correct to me, you know, the, the old older way, which you were describing, was, you know, top-down spirituality, you know, that the truth goes from God to clergy and then down to laity, and, you know, the, the new revolution, so to speak, is bottom-up. It, it's, it's laity up, and that seems to fit with this questioning uh, that, you, that you're talking about. You know, we are this under-30 crowd, you know, we tend to be more inquisitive. We tend to challenge authority more. We, we want answers to questions. I, I think that's tied up in that. You would agree or disagree with that? I do agree. It also ties in, again, I don't know if we've spoken yet about our classical model of educating here, but that ties into that as well because it is saying that you know logic and reason and critical thinking, those are things that are just so important for us, and we need to look at history and we need to look at our, our, our culture today 
and we need to use those gifts that God has implanted uh, to us. In other words, faith and reason are not things that, that collide. They just they walk hand in hand, and we need to understand uh, our, our, our religion and our faith uh, in, an, in a more enlightened way rather than just to either walk a dark path or to say we don't need to know that. In other words, uh, wearing blinders, which, um, again, I don't want to uh, throw under the bus the, the generation before us, but it seems like uh, a, a lot of the, the, the church that we grew up with, which was just uh, bursting at the seams, uh, was that church that just didn't question things. We just accepted them, and we're probably better off because we do uh, challenge things and because uh, it's more godly to do so. I mean, it's going to make us um, more healthier, um, more wholesome, uh, happier, uh, and more holy, uh, essentially. And, of course, that um, that that whole sense of that way of educating leads to greater wisdom and wisdom will lead to greater holiness and holiness will lead to a greater understanding of what it means to be in the image and likeness of God or to be more godly. Yes. I, I'm looking at another article and I think it's written more or less in the same vein. It's called Who is to Blame? First paragraph, if priests were permitted to marry, would it solve the Catholic clergy sexual crisis? If women were ordained, would it reduce sexual problems among clergy? If homosexual priests were ousted from ministry, would that improve matters? Should we place the blame primarily on celibacy, the all-male clergy, or the fact that some priests are gay? And that's just kind of the introductory thing, but you're really getting to something much deeper here. And then towards the end, more important is how we respond to this horrible situation. Like a person on a lifeboat in the middle of an ocean who discovers a tiny hole in the boat, doesn't matter how it got there. It only matters that he or she does something about it or drowns. Uh, so how can we respond in addition to prayer? And then you have some other um, points. But uh, can you unpackage that a little bit? Where were you going with that article? Um, who is to blame? I, I think you were kind of pointing maybe towards a, a, a proper attitude that, that one might consider. Yeah, gosh, I, I don't remember uh, writing all that, but boy, that, uh, that does kind of toss it all out there. And I think that that's the way we need to function as a purse, as a, as a church, is to deal with issues head on and not to pretend that they don't exist. I think that that image of the lifeboat uh, was won by uh, Carl Menninger, who used to uh, speak about that, because you know so many people get in tough situations in, the li in life and in the world, and the church is in a very tough situation, and, and probably when that was written, maybe it was related to more of uh, news stories. Um, maybe it was, yeah, yeah, whatever was happening at that time. That, sure. You know, what, what do we do? We have a choice if we're in a, a life raft and we see a, a little hole. It, it might take some time for that uh, you know, little hole to ha have much water seep in, but if, if you don't see land anywhere, if you don't find a, a, sur a survival or a chance of, of, of getting to where you want to go, you're going to have to do something. Um, so uh, do, do, do you just uh, drown there in it, or, or do you uh, do you respond? In other words, it may not be our fault that this happened, uh, but it did happen. And because it happened, this is, this is the vessel that we've got to get to where we're going in. So let's let's deal with it, and I I think that the church, um, gosh, you know, a, a lot of us maybe say that the church doesn't deal with things head on often enough, uh, and I, I guess that would be my my style is to deal with things uh, as as they occur and to, and and as best we can to deal with them head on. Um, but, you know, sometimes we just uh, wish them away and maybe we float long enough in this boat we're eventually going to come to to land before we go totally under. How about know. Pope Francis? Your thoughts on him and his work? Uh, you know, I, I just think that he is a gift uh, from God. I um, mean, the fact that he uh, chose the name Francis and he uh, looked to that story of Jesus from the cross of San Damiano uh, saying, rebuild my church. And uh, Francis thought, what, what does that mean? And took out a hammer and nails and started to do some repair work on, on churches that were falling in and 
realizing as he's doing that that that's not what Christ was asking him to do. We, we've got to rebuild a church. It, it is a structure, uh, but but it's not uh, that physical structure, but it's a, a structure of faith. And um, we need structures, I think. So this is why I wouldn't, you know, let go of, of religion, because I think religion is an important thing. We, we, the structures are going to help us to get where we want to go. And, uh, you know, the church is that vessel that leads us to our ultimate destiny, uh, union with God, uh, the heavenly re- reward, uh, that life on the other shore. But if that vessel is not doing its job, if religion is not doing what it's supposed to do, then it's not worth anything. If it's not taking us to where we're supposed to go. And it sounds like maybe, or it seems to me that the church gets off course sometimes. Mm. Um, but far more important than religion is, is faith, is spirituality, is union with God. And so to be spiritual, not religious, you know, to me in many ways makes sense if the religion is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. However, I think that the, the religion provides a structure that, that can help us to develop what, what our true goal is, uh, which really is the spirituality, our, our union w- with the Lord. Take you back to another one of your writings, um, July 2019. I see I dug all these out. Um, wow. Church's sin, sin of clericalism. Church's sin of clericalism, quoting Francis, just read the first paragraph. On several occasions, Pope Francis has commented that at the root of our church's many problems is clericalism. Clericalism is a disordered attitude of superiority towards the ordained, which becomes manifest in arrogance, expectations of privilege, and abuse of power. Um, can you unpackage that a little bit, what you believe Francis is saying when he criticizes clericalism? Because I, I think it's a clumsy word that not everyone fully understands. Right. Um, yes, I think clericalism and, and the Pope's criticism uh, toward it is certainly well warranted. Uh, like so many isms, um, the racism, sexism, uh, the other isms. Now, the, there's this other sense of clergyhood, um, and th- that is something that is uh, pro- pro- uh, probably what we ought to have. I mean, we ought to have a cler- clerical state uh, within the church, and it ought to be a healthy thing. But clericalism is something that becomes very unhealthy, uh, just as uh, a recognition of the sexes or the races uh, become racism or sexism. Uh, in other words, they, they, they turn in a very negative way. Uh, you know, clericalism is when a, a priest wants to be treated uh, differently uh, with honor, given power, or given certain privileges uh, because of his state in the clergy. Well, the state in the clergy should be a, a very uh, beautiful thing, um, uh, but, but also a, a humble thing. So once in a while you'll hear stories about a priest when he um, is prepared to go through the door and he steps aside so that the old lady can open the door for him so that he can go through because he's the priest. Well, that would be clericalism or mm-hmm. that, that he has to be served first and to eat first at a, a, a gathering. Uh, it, it's t- taking something to, to a, a privilege that, that isn't really what it's supposed to, to be. Uh, but there is a place for the clergy, and there is a, 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 a place that it ought to be, you know, it ought to rank in, a, in an honorable and in a humble way. But Pope Francis' challenge to it, or my challenge to it, or probably yours and lots of people, is that it goes awry. Not unlike, you know, the seven cardinal sins. I was talking to somebody earlier today, and they just had such a tough time of dealing with. Uh, the objective standard of morality, so that is what is sin, and then something that the church says is is greater than that, and that is our well-informed conscience to understand what leads us to sin. But if you look at those seven cardinal sins, as Andrew Greeley once said, at their core, they're all healthy human proclivities, but they just go awry. So if, if, if you look at anger at its core, it's an emotion. It's neither good nor bad by its very definition. Uh, but it can become sinful. But Jesus, who was not sin, uh, did not sin, got angry. You know, many times in, in the gospel, you can list a whole lot of them. Uh, but uh, but according to the church's precept, he would have sinned. Well, 
well, you can't really say that. I mean, uh, if, if you're not angry about certain things, that would be sinful. If you're not angry about clergy sex abuse or any time that a, a child suffers at the hands of an adult, well, that would be sinful. Or if we're not um, concerned uh, about injustices uh, that, that take place, you think of the, the, the George Floyd uh, incident, if that doesn't make us angry, well, that, 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 that is pr probably uh, sinful if we're not uh, aware that we can become better people. Or you can take any of the, the seven sins, uh, gluttony, you know, just core is a celebration or uh, uh, you know, nutrition or the sloth at its core is, is, is rest or lust at its core is appreciation of beauty. You know, you just go through each one of them and say, you know, at, at, at the core, they're, they're good things. Clergy is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. But when it goes awry, uh, it becomes sinful, which is what happens with clericalism. Um, or, you know, again, taking racism, my time in the inner city, uh, Alvin Brooks, I don't know if you ever met him. He's a police yeah. uh, captain. Command. Yeah, he was a, a great, yeah. great guy. And yeah. is, is still such a great uh, mentor. But I, I remember once being uh, with him and um, you know, a group of people, mostly white people, that put on these T-shirts in a gathering where he was going to speak, and, it, and the T-shirt said, I don't see color. Well, and his first statement to the people was, my gosh, take those off. You need to see color, and we need to appreciate color, and we need to respect uh, color, and we need to honor the different colors. So don't be colorblind, he would say. Uh, be color sensitive. Be uh, color aware. Uh, and, and, you know, again, I think the church needs to perhaps uh, tune in a little bit more with those things. Yeah, I think there are so many out there that so appreciate the work back to Francis that he's doing. And um, for many of us who who are not insiders, so to speak, the, the, uh, it, it, one wonders why it's taking so long to move on certain issues and, and move the institution in certain directions. Any thoughts on that? No, just that it must be incredibly frustrating for him. I know he gets criticized all the time, and uh, you know people will say, "Oh, if only, um, if only John Paul the Great uh, were around." Well, you know, uh, John Paul the Great uh, is great. He was a wonderful, uh, one, wonderful guy. But there were also a lot of uh, failures that happened under his uh, papacy and things that yeah. uh, set the church back in many ways. Or, of course, the exposure of all these things or many of these things that the church is dealing with uh, now in the uh, mismanagement of, of leadership, uh, poor leadership, but, you know, all these things that were exposed uh, from the uh, ba banking system. So, you know, we, we have to look at the uh, continuity, we sometimes say, the continuity of the papacy that uh, you get different leaders at different times uh, for different reasons. And I, I think God is involved in all this. I think God is, is uh, desirous uh, for us to uh, have the, the leaders that we have that help us uh, through certain times, but they're, they're men, you know, they're, they're human, also created in the human condition uh, with some failures. This infallibility thing has to do with, um, you know, moral teachings of the church, which I think... The, the doctrine on infallibility has, has maybe happened uh, three times in history where a pope or a council has actually spoken infallibly. Sometimes we misunderstand that and misuse that and say, well, the, the pope uh, can't make a mistake. Well, popes do make mistakes, but uh, the, the, the popes, those men who have been selected, have been selected through the power of the Holy Spirit, I, I believe, uh, but, but uh, I also think that, that that God is with them, and they're going to uh, guide us and, and lead us. Now, having said that out loud, I also know that there were some horrible popes in the past that did some very uh, destructive uh, things uh, and, and dangerous and, and hurtful and uh, immoral and illegal and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, I, you know, maybe it's truer to, to different degrees. But I, I just I, I, I'm very saddened when I hear people criticize uh, the pope, whether it's Francis or John Paul or Benedict or whoever. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're God's emissary, and they wear the shoes of the fishermen. Hopefully, they are guiding us in the ways of faith. Yes. Next point, and we probably ought to, ought to be wrapping this up. Transitions, next chapters, death, divorce, unemployment, empty nest, all of that. Uh, any thoughts on that? Any guidance on that? How to handle those transition next chapter periods in life? 
Yes, I think that these are the times when people feel like they are most lost, and I would say it is they are the times of greatest opportunity in one's relationship with God. So if you look at the, the younger group, uh, I'll just call the post-college uh, group, we find that um, people are, are graduating from college, uh, they're going out into the world, but the average age of marriage is uh, getting pushed back more and more. I think when I was first ordained those 33 years ago, probably the average age of the couples that I married was closer to 22, 24, and now the average age is probably more like uh, 28, 30, 32. Uh, and so there's a bigger gap there. What do you do with those years? Well, people are, are getting themselves settled, uh, but we, uh, they, uh, us, and maybe our society, and, and probably our church, does not have a, a system in place to help those young people to, to ask the question, where is God in all of this? How, what is God's role in your life at this stage uh, in your existence? Or to look at uh, empty nest and to know that, you know, here you are, your youngest kid's gone off to college and you're 50 years old or, or whatever, and uh, maybe particularly for stay-at-home moms, but I think it happens for working moms and for, for dads too, but they're asking, what now? Uh, yeah. our, our role as a couple has been to, to parent, uh, and, and our kids don't need us as parents anymore. So what what do we do? Or they need us as parents in a different way now, and I, I'm kind of lost. I've, I've given my last uh, uh, 25, 30 years to this way of being, and suddenly it's gone. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity for people to to find God in that, that void or to look at the retirement time and say, well, people are you know younger than you and me who are retiring, and they're living mm-hmm. longer than they did uh, in the past. So you might have a 30, 40 years of retirement. And what do you do with that next chapter in life? And it's such a, a wonderful opportunity uh, for us to find uh, God, our, our role in life, and, and to look at uh, faith, uh, religion, and, and purpose. And the same could be said uh, at more vulnerable, more vulnerable times of the death of a spouse um, would be another next chapter or, or a transition time in somebody's life. So I, I, I think uh, those are times maybe when people feel uh, the most lost, and I think it's when God's arms wrap us the most and want us to be most found. And I hope that we as a church can help people to sense that and to feel that and to know that. Mm. I lo- love that juxtaposition, most lost, but greatest opportunity uh, for God. It's great. Uh, lastly, how about the inner life? Um, what, what, how do you stay centered? How do you stay on track? Uh, what Do you have any regular spiritual disciplines that you employ that are refreshing, you know, fruitful, important for you that uh, you think are just kind of good rules for the road or or things for folks to consider? Sure. Yeah, I think the most important thing to consider is to know that we're all different and there's a different path for all of us. And so when it comes to our our spiritual path, uh, yours and mine are going to be a a little bit different. So even if I have something that works, it really works for me, and it may not work for everybody else or anybody else for that matter. But we do need to uh, uh, experiment with it, but also I would say experiment with it in the sense of being committed to it. So if somebody is serious about having a a healthier spiritual life or a stronger spiritual life, um, you'll be committed in, in the same vein that a, a writer would be committed Sometimes you take out writing courses, and uh, the, the teacher uh, may say, uh, 20 minutes a day during this period, you just keep writing, even if there's nothing to write, or even if what you're writing isn't actually letters that form words. Uh, maybe they're just squiggly lines that move uh, along the page. You have to keep at it. You have to keep doing it, uh, because it, it is in that sense that it will make more sense. So if, if we are going to be committed to a prayer life, uh, we've we've got to to do it even when we don't feel like it, and as um, I forget who who said this, but uh, maybe it was Thomas Merton uh, said, if you don't feel like praying, stop, stop the prayer, but let God pray within you. 
so it's mm. there so that it, it's still working. But it's uh, it's kind of a relationship, you know. It's 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 me and God together. So h- how do we do that? So I guess there are a million different uh, responses uh, to yeah. the question based on where the person is. You know, if, if you're stuck in in rote uh, prayer or or you know just saying words that somebody else has taught you. Uh, you know that that's okay, but I think it's probably valuable to transition to more meditative prayer, contemplative prayer, or reflective prayer—prayer prayer that doesn't just babble on, as Jesus said, "Don't babble on like the pagans do," but um, maybe to to listen more than talking in prayer. It's that old uh, adage about your parents said, "You know, you have two ears and one mouth, so that you will hear twice as much as listen." Well, I think that that applies in prayer also. Uh, that sometimes we just need to get quiet and listen listen to the movement of God, that still small voice planted deep within us uh, that, that's going to guide us. So I have my own uh, routine that includes a lot of things, and I could go through that uh, for you if you want, but I, again, I don't know that it would mean anything. Uh, please do if you're comfortable. I think folks would sure. be interested in, in hearing what your routine is. Yeah, well, I have the the breviary, uh, sometimes called uh, the office or the liturgy of the hours. This is what diocesan priests commit to and most uh, priests commit to and many religious people or those who have office in the church, uh, men and women uh, that are avowed in their, their life. Their lifestyle is a part of a prayer. And that, that prayer is structured and includes a lot of the psalms. 150 psalms in the uh, Bible, and they cover you know, a gamut of emotions. So every day we pray these psalms, and even if they are not emotions that I might be feeling at one day, because we're praying this for the church universal, we realize that it is the emotion of the church somewhere, or somebody who is a part of the, the church, and the Second Vatican Council's definition of church is the people of God. So those psalms are, are really looking at um, the, 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 the uh, emotive aspect of our life. But in addition to the psalms in that daily uh, breviary or, or office are other prayers uh, too. Uh, some are petitionary prayer. Uh, there is the uh, Benedictus in the morning, the Magnificat in the, the evening. Uh, so that's kind of a, um, oh, oh, what would you say, kind of the anchors of a prayer life of, of morning and night. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I pick up some other prayers that would also be what you might call other people's prayers, but they just have to do with my own devotion. The rosary is an important thing uh, to me, and so I pray that daily. Uh, the rosary in that sense of uh, calling us out into this relationship. Uh, it's, it's more meditative about a mother and, and child, uh, Mary and, and Jesus, but it, it's really uh, about the joys and the sorrows of this life and the glory of the life beyond us. And uh, But it's essentially about mystery, and so we call those mysteries joyful, sorrowful, and glorious. And then uh, John Paul II added the luminous mysteries, uh, and that also helps us then to see the light of Christ in the midst of the joys and the sorrows or the recognition of, of the um, ministry and uh, passion of, of Christ in the midst of all else that we do. So the rosary is just basically a, a meditation, but it should point us and let us go out there. You know, sometimes people will come to confession and say, oh, Father, I, I, uh, my mind wanders uh, when I pray the rosary. It's a sin. And I'm thinking, you know, your mind should be wandering when you're praying the rosary. It's a, a, contempl- it's a contemplative prayer. Let it wander and then invite God into the wandering. And then as you're going through these joys and sorrows of your life or even recognizing the light in the darkness of our existence, bring God into those things. Even if you see, you seem like, why am I thinking of that while I'm praying? It's just so profane. It's left the sacred realm. Think, well, don't. Invite God into that and find that place where it can become holy once again. The Stations of the Cross was something I picked up from the bishop when I was ordained. He was actually retired bishop of our diocese. Helmsing was his name. He's from Saint, another good St. Louis man like yourself. Mm. But uh, Helmsing uh, prayed the uh, Stations of the Cross every, every day, the final walk of Jesus. And just mm. uh, a little reflection, a little meditation. He gave me a personal week-long retreat in the days before I was ordained to the priesthood. And, and so I just uh, picked that up from him as a part of my daily meditation and then, um, you know, my other uh, prayers have to do more that is um, less structured, 
but but things that might uh, tie to me. Um, so like uh, keeping a journal, I, I, I do that. Don't write in it every day, but I write in it with uh, regularity several times a week. The Ignatian spirituality, which is essentially uh, to examine examine our lives, uh, the, the examination of consciousness, that is to be consciously aware of God in our lives. And I try to follow that in, in the way that uh, many Jesuits would to do a little check-in or check-up like with a doctor, but you go to the doctor of souls, you go to God morning, noon, and night, and just essentially say, how am I doing? What, what am I grateful for to, to God the Father, the first prayer of the church, a prayer of gratitude and praise, and then uh, the second prayer to the second person of the Trinity, uh, God the, the, the Son, and the, the prayer of contrition, the, the, the prayer of sorrow, the prayer of my own human condition. What am I doing that's wrong? How, how, what do I, where do I need to get back on track? And then the uh, third prayer, the third person of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit, and, and to look uh, at that third prayer, which is a petitionary prayer, whereas the first two look back and try to, to improve, to be more grateful, and to be more tied in to, to my own failings so that I can improve. Uh, the other one's looking to what's down the road, and uh, how do I call the Holy Spirit to be a part uh, of, of, of what I am I'm doing, of bringing God's grace to the things that are upcoming. I'm not as good as the Jesuits are uh, with this, but I, I try to check in morning, noon, and, and night just for a, a quick little prayer. It is you know, something that w- when I started might take 20 minutes, half an hour, and uh, now uh, you know, it's more like five minutes uh, just going through things uh, pretty quickly of uh, a review of life of where I was from the last time and, and just asking uh, God to be with me as I keep going. And then, you know, there are other things, uh, too, that I guess are, are less uh, structured in that way. So, you know, like turning off the radio in the car, I don't listen to it a whole lot, but I uh, try to uh, bring that uh, prayer of journey when I'm out there on the road, uh, symbolic of the journey of life and how we are. But anyway, that's that's just some of the pieces of it. Well, that's great. I appreciate the expanded explanation, and I think the listeners will just appreciate it. You know, there's there's a lot of great things uh, that you do, and there's, uh, uh, I think, just great tips for others in there that they can consider and potentially consider incorporating. I love something as practical as uh, turning the radio off on the road because uh, I know myself I can get agitated as can be if I've got a political station <laughs> on in the morning just going to work, and it, yes. it doesn't help. You just, you know, you can either go in peaceful or agitated, and... Uh, <laughs> If I turn the thing off, I get a better chance of staying peaceful, right? So I think that's great. Well, outstanding. Well, thank you for your time, Uh, Father Don. This has been uh, wonderful, enlightening. And uh, just anything else you want to mention? Just that I thank you for doing what you're doing here in Kansas City and uh, helping us as a, a people of faith to be united with the good Lord and to keep finding avenues uh, uh, for us as we uh, try to, 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 to find our way, to know that we're not alone, to know that there are other sojourners out there that are walking with us and that, uh, you know, that path is, is, is one that we take together. That's uh, part of what it means to be in communion with. Uh, it's with uh, God and with one another. And I just am so appreciative of what you're doing for us on this side of the state. Thank you, Mike. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, back at you. Thank you for all you're doing and uh, all your service to the community. And, uh, you know, just kind of these general themes from Monsignor Ty saying, love the people to you saying, you know, hey, be, be one with the people. You know, that's that's the most important aspect of it all. Uh, I, the, I really love the ability to distill it all down to that because it's it's I think easier for us to hold on to uh, nuggets like that when uh, when stuff gets complicated. So, uh, Father Don, thank you so much for what you're doing, and um, I'm sure we'll run into each other again, and thanks for everything you've done for contemporary spirituality. Absolutely. Well, God bless you, Michael. Thank you.